Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, April 21st, 2021. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Writers Fly Tran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. So, uh, Jacob, you weren't here last week. You missed our, our conversations. Where where were you? What were you doing? I took some time off to celebrate my wife's birthday. We got out of town. We did some drinking and eating safely. Saw some family, some vaccinated family. And generally had as much of a low-key vacation as you can have in these uh pandemic but looking up times uh i will say this much since i wasn't here last week patreon.com slash trekking new time and space thank you hd for covering yeah it. i did my best yeah i did mention last week that y- your wife was trying to convince you to love beer did you fall to the dark side jacob i have learned that i like hefeweizens I-, I like lighter beers uh that are easy on the hops but i'm not i'm not gonna be a big beer aficionado anytime soon <laughs> but I-, I can absolutely enjoy the right kind of beer in the right circumstance yeah, I feel like fruity Hefeweizens are like the only beer I can, 
I don't want to say like. I can stand. But I would still rather have a cider or, you know, a proper cocktail. Yeah, I will say this much. Going to a, uh, a place and ordering a massive giant beer for half the price of a cocktail, <laughs> it, it puts into perspective a few things about how I spend my money on alcohol. Yeah, yeah. What is the alcohol content of that that beer, though? Is it like the same percentage as a cocktail? No, absolutely not. A cocktail will be much yeah. stronger. But I also feel like there's a benefit to paying less and being able to uh, slowly get a buzz instead of drinking a cocktail and suddenly feeling like you can punch the wall. <laughs> yeah, you get the, the more time milking it and like enjoying it, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Okay, let's uh, move into what we've been doing. Uh, this past week was the reopening of Universal Studios Hollywood, and I got to go to the annual Passholder preview on Thursday and uh, experience what it's like. Right now, they're kind of in a, I'd say, almost like a soft opening of sorts. So for annual Passholders, you have to make a advanced reservation to attend the theme park. And the reservations are sold out like a week in advance and all the weekends are kind of uh, reserved at this time. But I think in mid-May, they're taking away that advanced reservation. You can just show up. But anyways, uh, the, the the exciting things at Universal Studios Hollywood are that they have opened up a new ride, the Secret Life of Pets Off the Leash attraction. And I got to admit, I'm not a fan of this franchise. I'm not a big fan of the, the series. I do have two dogs i do have pets i love the pets and i actually think the trailer for the the first secret love of pets is uh maybe one of the greatest like short films of all time it's just showing what the pets are doing while their owners are away but the movie itself is kind of like a toy story redux in not a you know better way and then it has snowball who's a character voiced by kevin hart i believe and is really annoying but anyways, that said, I wasn't expecting much from this attraction. Universal is Jacob, how would you normally describe a Universal Studios attraction? What are the like the tenets of a Universal Studios ride? Uh cutting edge, modern, uh pushing forward, I'd say, at least in in ways that I think if Disney's in dead the past, Universal is at least trying to do new <laughs> things even when they fail spectacularly. You put it way nicer than I was expecting you to put it. I thought you were going to say screens, <laughs> moving seats. A few years ago, maybe, but their, their past few attractions, uh, past yeah. three or four years, they, they've really heard that criticism, I think. Yeah. Well, this ride is Universal doing a classic Omnimover Disney ride, and it is filled with animatronics. It has 64 uh, dogs and cats and animatronics throughout the ride. The queue is amazing. It's normally with these theme park attractions, you're, you're put in these like switch pack queues and it's really, sometimes there's like some kind of theming around you to entertain you, but this is, you actually enter the apartment building from the movie Secret Life of Pets and you go through the apartment building, you go into the person's home and you're walking through the different rooms of the home and there's animatronics in the room that help tell the story. You are a dog who has wandered in off the street and these pets are going to help you get to the adoption day at the pet store so that hopefully someone can take you home. And the, the, the ride is just a joy. It, it is a slow-moving dark ride with tons of animatronics. And it's just so much fun. And I feel like even people that don't like Secret Life of Pets, like me, will 
really relate to this because there's so many little scenes of relatable scenes of you know there's one with a dog who whose leash is tied to a chair and he has gotten himself wrapped around a table and is trying to like eat something off of the table and he's like all tangled up there's a ton of stuff like that it, it's just such a i don't know it's it, it, joy is the word i just was so amazed at how good and this attraction was uh i know jacob you're saying that they've in recent years you know added more practical elements but th- this seems like they went full-on disney and uh i enjoyed it for the most part yeah i watched footage of this ride because that's what i do i, I watch youtube videos of ride throughs <laughs> um, <laughs> and it seems really impressive and it seems like it was made with a lot of care and a lot of uh, a-, a lot of intelligence and a lot of uh, understanding for what people probably want out of these characters in a ride like this. However, I do think it's hilarious that they greenlit this ride and then the second movie like <laughs> made like fraction of the money of the first one, which makes me wonder what its shelf life will be. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think, I mean, I, that is funny. That was going through my head while I was on this ride. But at the same time, I do think that you don't even need to care about this movie franchise to enjoy this ride. I think, more people than not are going to go on this ride and not have seen either of the two movies and just enjoy it for what it is because you really don't need to know anything that happened in the movies. It's just like your dog off the street and the, these dogs are trying to help you get to the adoption day. And like all the dogs have these quirky characteristics, which might be reminiscent of pets that you have or known. And yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to our ordinary adventures episode where we went on the ride but it's it's a lot of fun oh and they also have this technology by the way this is so weird because in february of 2020 i actually went down to this ride and did a walking tour a hard hat walking tour of them uh, showing as they were you know finishing up touches of this ride so so i was there over a year ago as it was being finished and now it's finally opening because of you know the unprecedented times that we live in but uh another part of the ride and this is conceived before we were all wearing facial masks is there are times where you're in your vehicle which is like a cardboard box you go you go into this mail room in this apartment building you get into this cardboard box and the cardboard box kind of like how cardboard box like holds puppies or something i guess is the the idea it takes you around the city for this adventure and it, at one point in the cardboard box, you go by a window that has one of those cameras that sh- it puts you on the TV, says, like, you know, we're filming you or something. And it shows you as a puppy, as a different puppy. So y- you can, like, move your arms. You could make facial expressions. But it doesn't really work half half of it because everybody's wearing masks. So the facial expression part doesn't work. But I don't know. It's a lot of fun. Uh, check it out. Uh, the other thing at, at Universal Studios Hollywood that I wanted to mention is Jurassic World the ride they did retheme this in I want to say 2019 summer 2019 this was like Universal Studios Hollywood's big uh, ride of that year and they were opening it uh, they had a timeline and they kind of rushed to get it out it was a retheming of the Jurassic Park ride which is a classic it's they have that in Universal Islands of Adventure and they have that they had that over here in Universal Studios Hollywood and uh, the, the version that they added over here, they took out the Brontosaurus. They added the Mosasaurus Aquarium, which was a great addition. They kind of uh, ruined the area uh, 
next to the raptors and stuff like that and turned it into like this predator cove which nothing was going on and then the end of the ride they added some fun things in, inside the lift hill where there's like a animatronic blue the uh, blue uh the raptor and at the end of the ride there was just this weak like it was a head of an indominus rex that was hidden behind you know when you go into an office building and they have one of those big planters with some like trees coming out of it it looks like they threw one of those in front of this indominus rex because they didn't have time to finish building this indominus rex's whole body so it was just a head coming through a planter of trees and it, it was like it felt like half a ride it was good but it felt like half a ride finally during this this pandemic universal was able to finish this ride and what that meant is they built a a full-scale indominus rex for the end of the ride which goes head-to-head with the t-rex so it's like a battle between the t-rex and the Indominus Rex, as you were going down the, you know, the drop with the, there's a big splash drop, kind of like splash mountain. And they also, they added a gyrosphere section and they, they took the old Indominus Rex, the, the, the head, and they put it in an interesting area. Anyways, you can watch the whole video. I'll link it in the show notes. It, it is fantastic. I would give it a 9.5 out of 10 people that were over in Orlando, the Orlando vloggers and, uh, theme park uh, aficionados were all like two years ago please don't replace our jurassic park ride with this jurassic world ride we like the way it is now after seeing the footage of this they're like please replace our jurassic park ride with the jurassic world ride so it, it is that much better and uh i highly recommend checking it out peter but, can um, i complain about this can, can, can i jump in and, and throw sure. a, a big bucket of ice water on, on your enthusiasm here sure I, I have I have not written this new version, but like I said, right through videos and YouTube, including yours. So, my issue with the new Jurassic World overlay, the new theming, is that for me, it ruins the pacing of the Jurassic Park ride. Jurassic Park ride is paced so well because it's themed that you're going on a perfectly ordinary, perfectly safe Jurassic Park ride. And for the first, like, two-thirds of the ride, it's just, oh, look, here are dinosaurs. It's very slow-moving. Moving there is, it's just this themed to be a ride where nothing goes wrong and then things go wrong in the last stretch of it and it goes wrong very quickly and then suddenly you're in, you're in danger whereas this one the opening scene features a giant dinosaur cracking glass and getting you wet and it, it, it goes wrong too quickly for me the pacing feels off am i being unfair peter i mean i can see that argument jacob but it's a storytelling thing man a storytelling thing <laughs> Yeah, but you're you're at Jurassic World during the events of the first move the the first Jurassic World movie, so you're you're there while things start to go wrong. <sighs> I don't yeah, know. Don't I, like I, I I just I I miss I already miss the pacing of the original. I feel I feel like the 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 slow burn of the initial design is what sells it for me. And I know they're going to change it in, the, in Orlando as well. And I'll learn to live with it. It looks very cool. It's all very impressive. But I, I always loved how the conceit of the original ride is, yeah, nothing's going wrong. It's perfectly safe until those last few minutes. I, I think you're wrong about it going wrong in the last few minutes. From what I remember, things go wrong when you take that that left turn instead of the right turn into, like, the raptor area. That's still that's pretty when, like, late in the ride, though. But, no, that's, like, right after where the Mosasaurus is and the the new ride, so... We're going right to after... post some side-by-side YouTube video series. I'm pretty sure it's a bit later than that. But okay, so the no, one, Mosasaurus... no one cares about this. No one yeah, cares no... about this. Yeah, no one cares <laughs> I should, I should have brought this. it up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Anyways, I, 
I will say this. If I have any qualms, qualms about this new version of the ride, it is that they, they put a gy- uh, gyrosphere. Is that what it's called? Gyrosphere. Yeah. Uh, one of those in a point where it, like, it has a sign like it's a gyrosphere loading area. And there's no possible way to get to this loading area. And there's no po- possible place you can go. It makes no sense. Logistically, it just makes no sense. So that's the only thing that really annoys me. But uh, ch- check out the video. I I loved it. And I, I do think, Jacob, your nostalgia for going on that ride for the first time. Like, I think you forget how janky that, like, Brontosaurus. Oh, like... they're super janky. Um, those robots need to be replaced. They're bad robots. I'm all <laughs> for replacing those damn robots. I just wish that – I just think that there is <sighs> – the new one's in a rush. It wants to get you into the into the danger too quickly. Whereas I admire how the original one is like, yeah, we're going to take our time, make you think you're safe, and then suddenly you're not safe. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, let's move on to what we've been reading. Jacob, what have you been reading? I'm reading one of the best books I've ever read in my entire life. This is a Say Nothing, A True Story of Murder and Memory in Northern Ireland by Patrick Radden Keefe. And a few months ago on the podcast, Ben and I talked about the podcast uh, called Wind, Wind of Change. And this is this guy who made the podcast wrote this book, and I did not know that. I had I no bought. idea this existed. Yeah, I did not know it was the same author until I started reading. It. I said, "Oh, holy crap! This book is good. What else has he written?" I realized, "Oh no, he made a podcast I talked about." Uh, but it's it is about the troubles in Northern Ireland. You know, the, the clashes between the IRA and uh, Irish Revolutionary Armies versus you know the, the British military and, and British government. And as somebody who had the vaguest understanding of what the troubles were and didn't really understand why they happened or why they had an impact. This book was really illuminating. It was, it was fascinating. I learned so much about this, you know, 40 year war between uh, Irish citizens and the British government. And it was, I, I realized that I, how little I knew and how, and how, how layered and complex this conflict really was. And the book is fascinating because it, tells a, a series of stories. It, it's, it follows three main IRA members over the decades. All of them end up having very divergent, different lives. And at the same time, it follows a family whose mother is abducted from their home and executed by the IRA and their bodies never found. And essentially it's this collision course over the decades of how these stories intertwine, how these people end up uh, connecting to this unsolved murder, which it's, Incredible. It's a true crime story that uses the, the troubles as, you know, a backdrop while also explaining what the troubles were in incredible cinematic detail. Keith is an incredible writer. Uh, the history here is truly fascinating, and I couldn't stop reading it. I, I, I'm near the very end of it now, and this is for history fans, true crime fans, fans of war stories. And it just is a, a book about the, the damage we do to ourselves and our society in the name of bettering it and how we grapple with that. And just the stuff that happened in Northern Ireland in the late 60s and 70s as an American, I was so uneducated about what, what actually happened and what it meant to both sides of the conflict. Uh, Say nothing is by far one of the best works of nonfiction I have ever read. And I think that in particular, Chris and Ben need to buy this book and read it. Yeah. I just added it to my list. Yeah. I've heard, I've heard, I haven't read this, but I've heard it's great. Yeah, his uh, new book just came out, literally his new book about the family responsible for the uh, opioid crisis just came out this week. So that one arrived from Amazon for me. I'm going to read that next. I'm going to dive right into it. Okay. 
Uh, Chris, you've also been reading. What, is, what have you been up to? Uh, I just finished uh, Jim Henson, the biography by Brian J. Jones. And this is this was great. This is a wonderful, uh, very exhaustive biography. It's almost too exhaustive in that uh, the writer like really goes to great lengths to like uh, just expand on everything. Like the part where like the chapter where Jim Henson first starts working in TV starts with like a history of TV. And a part of me was like, I don't know if I need all this information, but thank you, Brian J. Jones. But uh, this was great. If you, it's, it's just, you know, obviously it's all about Jim Henson's life pretty much from the cradle to the grave. And it, it just goes into what made Jim Henson so special and so, you know, important. And uh, it was just illuminating in that, you know, uh, just to see what kind of person he was. And, you know, not only was he just a really nice guy, but he was also like super confident. And uh, that's something that's like so alien to me because I, I'm just the most insecure person on the planet. Like there's, there's this one part where right after Jim Henson's career is starting to blow up, he's like in a limo and the limo driver is like, did you ever think you'd be this popular? And Jim Henson is like, yes, I did. And I'm angry. It took this long. And like, I can't, I can't imagine like being someone who like thinks like that. Like in my mind, I'd be like, no, I'm shocked. Anyone gives a shit about anything I'm doing, but uh, it's, it was, it's a, just a wonderful book, except for, you know, the end where, you know, it goes into his death, which is just so shitty and tragic and like, it really could have been avoided if he had just like probably gone to the hospital just like one day sooner. Basically he waited, he had this uh, bacterial infection uh, for several days and he was, he was literally coughing up blood and he was like, ah, I'll just go back to my apartment and, and rest. And he waited until like the very last minute. And basically like minutes after he got to the hospital, he slipped into a coma and he never recovered and he died. And it's like, Oh, you, you read that and you're just like, if this guy had just like fucking gone to the hospital, like one day sooner, he would still be alive. And, it, you know, but beyond, you know, beyond that, that really tragic ending, the book itself is just wonderful and charming. And you learn all about the Muppets and all about the Muppet performers. And uh, one thing I really loved about this is, uh, you know, there are extensive interviews with everybody who knew Jim Henson. And every time they interview Frank Oz, he's just like constantly cursing which I just found very, <laughs> very charming. He's just like, he's just constantly saying the F word. Like everything he says is like punctuated with the F word, which I was not expecting. And I, I, I'm not like, obviously I'm not like offended by that because I kind of talk like that too. But I just found that very, uh, very endearing that Frank Oz just curses like a sailor at all times. But yeah. if, if you've seen any non-EPK interviews with him, he just doesn't give a fuck. Like, yeah. he, like it's just going to say what he thinks and he doesn't care if that aligns with anybody's agenda or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, this is, this is a, a wonderful book. I, I really can't recommend it enough. Well, very cool. And that is called Jim Henson, the biography. Yes. Okay. Let's move on to what we've been watching this past week. I turned on Netflix and I went to bad trip because so many of you had recommended this movie. And this is the, would you call it a prank movie? I'm not sure. I think that's fair. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's sort of like a hybrid between a, a prank movie and a road trip movie. It reminds me of like bad grandpa where it, it includes these prank scenes more so than Borat because Borat, and I guess they're all of that similar genre, 
but it's it's a scripted buddy comedy road movie that has a hidden camera prank show inside it and uh eric andre and tiffany haddish and uh, Lil ray it, it is it is very enjoyable i i don't know i wasn't expecting to enjoy it as much as i i did it, it first of all it's weird to see the orion logo in front of movies again am i the only one that's weirded out by that it's just <laughs> it was like a thing from my childhood and it's, it's weird that that uh is coming back but anyways um there's some scenes in in this movie that are really laugh out loud. Like I was shaking with laughter. Like there's a scene with a blender, and then there's also like some very cringeworthy bad stuff. So it's it, it's a it's a grab bag of you know you're not gonna. I don't think anybody's gonna come out of this movie being like every scene was hilarious because there's definitely some stuff that doesn't work. And I I forget who said this last week or the week before on the podcast, but the the credit sequence. Uh, goes through kind of like the candid camera. I'm dating myself by saying this candid camera. <laughs> but the end, candid camera, they would do these pranks. And then at the end of the prank, they would, you know, come out with the cameras and reveal that it was all just, you know, a, a gag. And it was great to f- be able to see that because you don't get to see that in the Borat movies. You don't really get to see the behind the scenes much. And I wish we could see more of that and i'm guessing we don't because you know well with the borat movies we definitely don't get to see that because he doesn't do that he doesn't come out and be like oh it was all a prank uh but i don't know it it, it was a lot of fun i enjoyed watching it is it a is it a great movie no but uh was it uh some fun entertainment to, to pass the time yes so bad trip that's on netflix and we were going to this opening of universal studios hollywood which had the Secret Life of Pets off the leash attraction. I had only seen the first Secret Life of Pets movie, so we decided to put on Secret Life of Pets 2. This is the one that came out that, uh, <laughs> I don't want to say it bombed. Jacob, did it bomb? It definitely did like half the amount of money that the first movie did, right? It didn't bomb, but definitely <laughs> it didn't turn into the billion-dollar ongoing franchise Universal clearly wanted it to be. Yeah, they thought it was going to be the next Minions, which is also written by Brian Lynch. Uh, by the way, who also wrote uh, this and The Ride and everything. And um, this one is on Netflix. The first movie is not available on Netflix. I think that you have to actually rent or purchase it. It's weird that these movies are universal movies that I can't watch on Peacock. Because I was like, surely Peacock is going to have the Secret Life of Pets movies, but they don't. But um, anyways, uh, Secret Life of Pets, I... Didn't love the first movie. I think I liked the second movie even less. It uh, becomes this like road trip adventure. And it's kind of about fatherhood, which I'm sure the the filmmakers and screenwriter were probably going through. And I, I cannot relate to because I don't have a kid. <laughs> but uh, the, the, the crux of the story is Max, the main dog. Uh, he faces some challenges when his owner gets married and they now have a kid kid named Liam and uh, they go on this family trip to the countryside and all chaos ensues. It's, it's a, it's a very mixed bag. I, I will say that I do like the characters in these movies. The, the characters are a lot of fun. It's the story and some of the humor that I'm just not my cup of tea. Uh, like the story for the first one just felt kind of like a ripoff of, of toy story. And uh, this one, I don't know. It, it, I do enjoy, I think anybody that has a pet in their life or has had a pet in their life will find stuff to enjoy in the Secret Life of Pets movies. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think I like the second one 
less than the first one. Ketra liked it a lot more than the first one. So, I don't know. Your mileage may vary. But, uh, yeah. Secret Life of Pets 2. And you can watch that on Netflix right now. Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, the new season of Top Chef started. The, the best reality show on television. Uh, the best traditional reality show on television. I've watched Top Chef most of my life. I've watched it every year since season two, many, many years ago. And it's one of the ongoing consistencies in my life that Top Chef is always good. It's one. Of the, it's the only show on Bravo I watch. And I love that it's a, a cooking competition that seems to take cooking seriously. It seems like treat it as an art form. And man, is it just really fun and addictive. And I love how it really gets into the nitty gritty of what it's like to be a chef and what like what it's like to actually prepare food. Uh, I, I got to ask anyone else here a Top Chef fan because I feel like it's the show that seems to be this omnipresent, but no one I know outside of my family watches it in my in my like me, immediate circle. See, nothing changed. No, no, no <laughs> one else watches watch Top Chef, but it's great. I, I feel like it's a show that I should like and watch, but I, I just can't find the time to to watch a mindless reality competition. But it's not yeah. mindless. That's, that's what I like about Top Chef is that it's it does not have the sense of mindless chaos or cheap soap opera drama that so many other. Oh, well, I'm not saying have. cheap. Yeah. I'm just saying like I I don't think I'm gonna learn anything from. I mean, maybe I would. Maybe I'd learn how to cook some stuff. Peter yeah. is already a Top Chef. <laughs> yes, <laughs> with, with my uh, Blue Apron or whatever I have. Yeah, it's it's good though, and this season was the one they filmed during COVID, so it, it, it had some very interesting changes to it. A lot of masks, a lot of social distancing, and instead of having like different judges every season, they have a a bunch of former winners and contestants from previous seasons all living in the same bubble who come by every week to be the judges. So it's a very interesting way from the film it, and I just love Top Chef. I mean, it's just I I feel the same way about Project Runaway, a show that my wife uh, used to watch like consistently uh, back when it had its original. Um, creative team and uh, at the front of it but how they're both shows that, uh, on bravo that really treat their subject matter with respect and although i never really got into project runway because i'm just not into fashion like she was uh we both see they're very clearly the same two pieces in the same pod and that they just are really respectful of their subject matter in a way that i don't think a lot of reality shows would be uh so that's top chef the new season uh on bravo i'm not sure where it streams these days maybe maybe peacock i don't know who knows but find top chef it's really really good and a good uh binge watch if you're looking for something that's that goes down easy jacob uh, uh, there there is a a cooking reality competition show that i used to watch called the great food truck race did you ever watch that I haven't. My mom is addicted to it. I've been watching all the back seasons on wherever that's streaming right now. Yeah, it's fun. It's probably on that. Uh, what's that service that you have? The uh, uh, Discovery Plus. Discovery Plus. I'm yeah. I'm assuming it's on there. Okay, so what else have you been watching? Uh, I watched the, a new Shutter original, Shutter horror streaming service, uh, The Power, directed by Corinna Faith. And this is a film set in 1970s London, uh, when the city was dealing with um, widespread uh, power outages due to. Um, energy shortages and, and uh, labor strikes. And it follows a, a nurse on the first day of her job at this London hospital is assigned to the night shift when the power in the hospital will be turned off, almost all patients relocated, and she has to watch over a handful of critical care patients with a generator on and a lantern, essentially. And uh, let's just say there may or may not be ghosts lurking about in the hospital at night. Uh, it's, a, it's a slow burn. It takes, it takes a while getting going, and it's never one that's like constantly in your face. Uh, but it has a has a mood to spare and I really like the performances and I had a really maybe not a good time because it's not necessarily like a feel good exciting horror movie but it's definitely 
a very unsettling uh, mood piece, one that really transports you to a very specific time. Like 1974, hospital uh, in London during a blackout is this is a really fascinating place to stage a horror movie. And I requisite asking of Chris, Chris, have you seen the latest Shutter horror movie, The Power? I actually have seen this. I forgot to put it on the list. And uh, I liked it for the most part. Uh, <laughs> There's some hesitation in your voice there. I though. didn't I didn't love it. I think it has great uh, atmosphere. It, it looks great. But it's one of those movies where, like, every single character is just, like, fucking annoying. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like, I, I, it's like, you got to give me someone. You have to give me at least, like, two characters to root for. It can't be just one. I need at least two. Uh, if it's like only one sort of, I, I think the problem is the main character. I don't want to give too much away because, but the main character is so passive that it, it like it makes the movie un. I don't want to say like unenjoyable because that's like I don't want. I don't. I don't need every movie to be like ah. I'm here to be entertained. I just you know. But I need more than what this movie is offering. That said, great atmosphere, visually great. Has some really creepy stuff in it, but I didn't. I didn't love it. Yeah, I mean, I I entirely understand what you're saying because uh, main character is a passive trampled upon woman in a in an incredibly aggressive atmosphere, surrounded by people who do not care about her feelings at all. So I I I could mount the argument that you're what you're complaining about is by design, but it doesn't change the fact that it didn't work for you. But uh, the power of streaming on Shutter, so go watch it yourself and have your own opinion. Let us know what you thought. Uh, and finally. Uh, on Twitter this week, uh, Jack Black blew up uh, in a, again as he tends to do every few months on social media. People started sharing clips as from he Rock. should. Yes, he should because he's great. He's, he's a treasure. And I'm wondering if this is because uh, School of Rock was playing on HBO last week while I was on my vacation with my wife, and we put it on for a few minutes just to have it on the background and watching the whole thing. The School of Rock is so good, and Jack Black is so good in it. And it's a it's a case of a movie uh, and a director Richard Linklater and a screenwriter Mike White is knowing how to build a movie around Jack Black's very specific energy. And uh, at the time, I mean, School of Rock was a hit. It did well. It got good reviews. But it's one of those movies where, you know, nearly 20 years later, it's like, oh, that was actually a great movie. Not just a yeah. fun comedy that did well, but a great movie. And I think that the time has come for School of Rock to be acknowledged as, like, one of those uh, classics 20 years later type situations. I, I hope we're all in agreement that School of Rock is – pretty much a masterpiece i love yes. that movie yes, yes. It's, it's amazing perfect without a doubt <laughs> that's it that's it for me school of rock's great i do wish there was a website jacob where i like you know why is this trending.com because I'll, I'll see someone like jack black trending and I, I i'll go on like a mission i'll like click on the hashtag or whatever and go through the tweets and I'll, like i'll come out like 20 minutes later still not understanding why it's trending it sounds like you should build a second website peter it's too much. I can't even figure it out, Jacob. How could I build the website? I Hire someone... some youths. Hire some youths to be your researchers. <laughs> okay, Ben, what have you been watching? Uh, well, after some back and forth about Muppets Most Wanted recently on this podcast, I decided to finally watch this movie because I'd never seen it before. I was very much in the same yeah. boat as Chris. Uh, <laughs> just, having... for, just for some context here, Jacob, because you weren't here last week. I mentioned Muppets Most Wanted, and Peter was like, no, that movie is not good. And I said, yes, it is good. And now Ben will be the defining factor. Oh, God. What was weeks ago, though, when I was already on your side, Chris? This movie is good. No, I'm saying the movie is good 
Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I got confused. <laughs> I love this movie. Peter said it's not good. Is I'm, I meant I'm on your army. I'm part of your army, Chris. I'll shut up so Ben can talk, but I'm on your army. I, I, I'm your loyal foot soldier <laughs> in Muppet's Most Wanted War. <laughs> so I think this movie is mostly very good. Um, I, I that laughed. sounds so. like a, I don't know. The, the reason that I didn't care for it is because I think it has some really, really shoddy looking visual effects stuff in it that I just think they could have easily cut out of the movie and like it would have been so much more enjoyable. Um, there are several moments, especially at the very end, where there's this this premise of uh, one, of, one of the locations in the movie is a Siberian gulag and one of the, um, the threats that uh, Tina Fey's character who sort of like oversees this gulag, uh, one of the threats that she like holds over these prisoners is like, oh, I'm going to put you on the wall and it's just like freezing you to this wall that's out in, you know, sub-zero frigid temperatures. And um, it's just, it looks so green screened and so terrible when anybody is up on that wall. And there are several instances of, uh, of Kermit or Constantine, the, 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 the evil twin the sort of version. The world's most dangerous frog. <laughs> yes. Um, there are several versions. Constantine so much. What? Oh my God. <laughs> Peter. The, okay. So, so just to finish this point really quickly, the, there are several instances of, uh, of Constantine. I don't think Kermit ever actually does this. Of Constantine um, like flipping around like Yoda in uh, episode two, where oh, it just it. looks really, really bad. And it's, it's clearly CG and just... Um, I, I hated the the visual look of it, but I love the character of Constantine. I laughed so hard every single time he mispronounced anything. Any of the like all of the jokes uh, so surrounding good. Constantine, I uh, just totally worked for me. I actually don't even really like Ricky Gervais that much, and I think he was really good and really well cast in this movie, um, playing a, a guy named Dominic Bad Guy, <laughs> and it's such a stupid dumb joke, but I think it works really well. And that's kind of like the whole movie, like the entire thing feels really silly um maybe even sillier than some of the other muppet movies but i just think it's so pure of heart and and most of it just works really well um even you know despite the silliness so uh yes i I have some qualms with it in terms of like some some visual stuff and like i said that those uh god the cg like frog jumping through a hallway kind of stuff it's just like oh you could have easily gone without this and this movie would have been you know an entire letter grade better or something but um but yeah, I I really enjoyed this for the most part. And by the way, Jim Henson and Frank Oz like pioneered ways of making like Muppets ride bikes and do things practically in ways that like look incredible. So for it to look that shoddy, I don't know. It's an yeah, yeah. I, I don't know exactly what happened there. Um, sort of feels like that it was it was sped along to meet a release date or something. I have no idea if that's actually what happens, but that's just sort of how it, how it felt to me. But. Um, yeah, I, I think I'm I am uh, I'm on the team of uh, supporting Muppets Most Wanted. That's so. all that matters, Ben. That's all I care about. <laughs> well, you guys are all wrong. I'm sorry. This movie is entirely too silly. Constantine is horrible. Peter, it's Constantine a Muppet is... movie. They're supposed to be silly. All no, movies. no, but they 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 are grounded in in ways that I I don't know. I really liked uh, the the movie that preceded it, The Muppets. I feel like that. Uh, touched on the nostalgia and wasn't too silly and too yeah there's nothing uh, there's nothing silly about uh you know there being a you know a muppet brother to a human without any real explanation <laughs> as to why he's a muppet in the human hey, world nothing silly about that at all 
No, I, hey, I, I bought into that, Brad, is what I'm saying. Yeah, look, and in Peter's defense, I can understand that if for some reason you hate the character of Constantine, you're probably not going to like this movie because he's like a major force in this film. And I just completely bought into it and really loved every pretty much every second I, I am, he was on I screen. am shocked anyone would dislike Constantine. Oh, the character is great. Oh, and, <laughs> and if you hate the new voice of Kermit the Frog or the new performer of Kermit yeah. the Frog, that is Matt Vogel, who did Constantine. I didn't say I hated the performer. <laughs> no, but <laughs> I'm personal again. <laughs> hey, I don't hate the performer, but I don't know. I don't think his perfor- his performance is too silly now. It's not even uh, just the voice. It's just, I don't know. I don't buy right. into to, it. To each their own, Peter. You're, yeah, you're allowed to be wrong. You're I'm sorry you didn't care for it, Peter. I, I just, uh, I would encourage everybody to um to watch this if yeah. if like me and chris you skipped it because you heard bad things i think it's definitely worth um you know tapping in and, and sort of seeing which which side of this divide you fall on so don't, don't listen to ht should listen to watch this movie so you ht to join our army i would love that yeah ht where do you stand on muppets i don't think i've ever heard you talk about the muppets you know i actually don't have like a long-standing affection for the muppets because i didn't really grow up with them i guess i mean I did, but I guess they weren't really like in my childhood as much as I feel like everyone else was. So I like I've seen the Muppets, uh, most the Jason um, uh, Siegel. Siegel movie, and I've seen you know uh, Muppet Christmas Carol and a handful of others. But I just didn't, haven't seen like all the Muppet movies. I guess what, what channel was Muppets on? Uh, I don't even remember what it was. I mean. Hmm. Oh, no. The Muppet Channel. <laughs> the Muppet Channel. Because I grew up I mean, Di- without Disney, cable. Yeah, Disney owns them now, so they're, the last few shows have been on ABC, but I don't know what they were on originally. But I, I do want to say that I am a maybe my expectations and were just too high for this because I'm just a huge Muppet fanatic. I I own Muppets. Like I have a Kermit. I have an animal. I have a, a Gonzo. I I don't have. And like, I think I probably have three photos of myself in my house or my apartment. And one of those photos is me with Kermit. So, so that shows you how much I love the Muppets. So I think my expectations maybe were just too high for this. Yeah. I'm not a Muppet head. So I'm kind of, yeah, I'm, I'm amused by this whole conversation, but I don't know if I watched, (laughs) if I would watch Muppets Most Wanted uh, and like have a real big say in it because I just, you know, I, I'm a casual have seen a couple of Muppets movies, but uh, you know, don't have like really strong opinions about them. Hey, she is your editor. I'm putting you on assignment. <laughs> I'm joking. You don't have to. You don't have to watch Muppets Most Wanted. It's like how I totally missed the SpongeBob boat. Um, and I don't. Well, I missed that too. Yeah, and all my friends, like my entire generation, like they formed their identities around SpongeBob. Like half of my friends' conversations, they'll be quoting SpongeBob, and like I have no idea what you're saying. So I can I can relate to that HD. Yeah. Uh, only it's the Simpsons for for me because uh, I missed that whole thing, and everybody just constantly communicates in Simpsons memes, and I'm like, <laughs> I don't get any of this. <laughs> uh, okay, all right. I, I guess let's let's move on to the next thing that I talked or that I watch, which is uh, the Age of Innocence, which is uh, Martin Scorsese's movie from. 1993. Um, I wrote about this for the quarantine stream, so I won't go too long on it here. This is the first time I'd ever seen this. Um, man, I, I was, uh, th- this is so, such an immersive movie. Like the, the, f- um, the first few minutes of the f- this film, uh, it, it took me a little bit to get into it, but once I was, it felt like I was pulled into a completely different world. The way that everything looks, and it's so, um, like the production design and the costume design and and the the visuals and the, the entire world of this like 1870s New York City, rich upper crust part of society, um, 
is so opulent and intricate and just, um, you know, exquisitely designed. And the characters uh, behave and speak in ways that are like, completely foreign to me. Um, so it, it took a second, it took a few minutes before I was able to sort of like settle onto this movie's wavelength. But uh, once I did, I, I enjoyed it for the most part. I think I personally uh, wish that the romantic chemistry between Daniel Day-Lewis and Michelle Pfeiffer, who are sort of the, the main characters of the movie, uh, was a little bit steamier. Like the, I wish the characters themselves had a few more moments where they could have, um, you know, met up and like let off some of that steam because so much of this movie is about longing and like not being able to, to be together because of the, uh, the bounds of society that, that, you know, the, um, yeah, these, these cultural, uh, uh, norms that they have to adhere to in order to stay members of these, uh, of this like wealthy New York elite community. Um, and, and so much of the movie is just, uh, is, is communicated through uh, things that are not said and, and left unspoken. And I wish that th- there are a couple little moments here and there where these characters who are clearly in love with each other, but just can't be together. Um, you know, they do meet up briefly, but then they split apart really quickly again. And then the whole rest of the movie is them, you know, staring at each other over long distances or um, talking or sort of glancing at, glancing at each other in rooms filled with other people where like they clearly want to do something about it, but can't. And it's a, it's a movie very much like about restraint. Um, and I, I just wish, I think it was like a little bit too much restraint for me. Like just, I don't, I don't know what, what it was. I, I just wish that they, um, I think the whole thing would have landed a little bit more emotionally for me had I seen uh, more of a glimpse of like what their life could have been like together Um instead of just imagining that like these characters spend most of this movie doing, if that makes any sense. So um, I'm, but, I'm sure we have some Martin Scorsese of... only makes gangster movies. He only makes violent <laughs> gangster movies, but, but violent men. He only makes toxic movies about gangsters. He can't make this movie clearly, Ben. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, that, that's actually like the, um, you know, what you're uh, sort of satirizing there, Jacob, is like the tone of the internet over the past like two years, I would say. Uh, and so much, so often the rebuttal to those, um, you know, frankly, dumb comments about Scorsese and, and sort of broad generalizations about his filmography include The Age of Innocence as like, uh, oh yeah, well, have you seen this kind of thing? And for me, the answer was always no. So I was like, you know what? I actually need to finally get around to watching that. So um, The Age of Innocence, I believe is, let me look this up really quickly. It is streaming on Pluto TV right now with ads. Um, so if you want to watch it there, uh, you can do that. But There's also a really good Criterion Blu-ray out now if you're still a physical media guy like me, which I own. It's, it's my way to watch Age of Innocence. Yeah. Oh, great. Okay. Watch, watch it on Pluto TV with ads just the way Martin Scorsese. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I also watched The Man Who Knew Too Much, which is from 1956. This is uh, Alfred Hitchcock's remake of a, his own movie. He made uh, the first film in 1934. I actually tried watching that once and just couldn't get into it. Um, I, I made it all the way through. Congratulations to me. Uh, the 1956 version, which stars uh, Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day as this American couple who uh, are on vacation with their young son in um, Morocco and they... they are in Casablanca and Marrakesh and they, they come across this uh, French guy who seems kind of, um, you know, amenable to them. He helps them out. Uh, and during a sort of like faux pas scenario on a bus. And then, uh, it turns out that this guy is, um, is more than he seems. And he delivers a message to, uh, Jimmy Stewart's character. And, 
um, things sort of escalate quickly from there. So it's sort of like a, uh, a spy story involving this couple who are like way out of their depth. And um, it sounds a lot better on paper than the execution of this movie actually was. I think um, Hitchcock, you know, rightly is, is well known for making thrillers and like really great suspenseful movies. And this one, I just felt like dragged on a little bit too long and, or maybe a lot too long and uh, was very slow, especially compared to some of the other stuff that, that he has made. Um, I just found this to be, yeah, a little bit of a drag. Um, there are lengthy song sequences. The the song K Sera Sera was written for this movie and actually won best uh, original song at the Oscars, but it's performed, I think multiple times in its entirety and it just sort of drags out. Um, yeah. The, the pacing is the biggest problem that I had with this movie, but, you know, for a thriller that is supposed to be built on like, oh my God, what's going to happen next? Uh, if the pacing is off, then it sort of throws off the foundation of the whole experience. So um, I, I don't think I would necessarily recommend this one. There are many, many other Hitchcock movies that I would put ahead of this one in, in sort of a grand ranking, or a ranking but I guess if you're a completist, um, I, I know this movie is like well-respected and, and probably well-liked by a lot of uh, Hitchcock fans, but I, for some reason, I just didn't really connect with this one. Uh, um, did you say that you? Did you say that it you sucks. didn't like well, the first one? Or the uh, yeah, I, I tried watching it, and I don't know if it was just like too late at night or something when I tried putting it on. Um, I forget who it, who it, who stars in that. Peter Lore um, stars. Yes, in Peter Lore. That's right. Um, yeah, I just I I got like maybe ten or fifteen minutes into it and was like, ah, I I'm not in the mood for this right now. So I, that was probably more to do with me than the movie itself. You gotta but. go back, Ben, because the original one holds up. It's okay. It's just no fat on it. This lean, mean, super early a Hollywood thriller with a great Peter Lorre performance. Mm. Whereas it was actually before on, Hitchcock made his his uh, leap over to Hollywood, so it was back oh, yeah, so, in his yeah, British in, days. English, so yeah. pre Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, um, the, the the remake tacks on an unnecessary hour to like an incredibly lean, like no fat, all momentum thriller. So it, hmm. okay, yeah. all right. Well, and the original yeah, too, I, like Peter Lorre is so good in it. Like he, it's at his height of being that that creepy, like sort of malice that he does so well. So uh, do if you if you want if you want to like check it out, watch it just for Peter Lorre. But yes, I agreed with Jacob. It's it's a much leaner movie and the suspense sequences that he like fills out in almost too grand of a scale in the remake uh, plays m- much better, I think, in the original. Oh, great. Okay. All right. So that one, I know the the original movie, in case people are listening to this, I'm, as of last time I checked, was streaming on HBO Max. So if anybody wants to watch that one, it sounds like that's the one to check out. So you can do that there. Uh, and then finally, I revisited the original Bad Boys from 1995. Um, I've not seen Bad Boys for Life yet, but I remember Jacob speaking uh, sort of fondly, uh, highly of that movie. Uh, I recorded that from some movie channel on my DVR and uh, was going to just jump right into it and decided, you know what, I, I probably should rewatch the the other movies in this franchise because um, I had not seen them, especially the first Bad Boys, since, I don't know, the late 90s or something. It had been many, many, many years. And um, I'm sort of sad to say that I didn't think this movie holds up very well. Um, this is Michael Bay's directorial debut. And uh, I mean... It, it's interesting in that regard, like just sort of seeing some of the hallmarks that would that would you know define his entire cinematic style uh, being um, not quite fully formed, but certainly like visible and, and on display in this movie is is like interesting from like a um, you know like a, a an anthropological perspective or something. But uh, I don't know if it's just because of the spate of uh, of 
police officers murdering people in the streets now, but like the movie sort of feels like copaganda and kind of like the worst way. And it just, um, it feels a little ickier to watch than it did to, you know, the naive me that watched it in probably 1998 as a a kid, basically. So I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to like fully get back on board uh, the bad boys franchise because these movies are just, you know, Michael Bay, Michael Bay like glorifies everything that he shoots. There's so much like slow motion and just the, those low angles and uh, American flags waving in the background. And like his, his whole thing is just so much like style over substance. And when that style is in support of, uh, you know, police who are like just brazenly, wantonly gunning people down and like innocent people are getting mowed down and and like the movie does not care to stop and and deal with them. I mean, I realize these are tropes that appear in multiple action movies and and are sort of like baked into the action movie uh, DNA um, of the entire genre. But um, something about the the alchemy of it in the first Bad Boys um, sort of left a bitter taste in my mouth after all these years. So. Uh, that's that, I guess. Um, that movie, if you want to, I, I guess if, if you have AMC plus it's streaming there right now. So that is the first bad boys. Okay. Let's move on to Brad. Brad, what have you been watching this week? Uh, so I watched, um, an Indian movie called Pihu, um, that was recommended to me by my mom who happened to randomly find it on Netflix. Um, it is, uh, directed by Vinod Capri and he's a journalist who's also a filmmaker and it's inspired by a true story. And the movie follows this two-year-old girl, uh, who wakes up in her parents' apartment. Um, her father is, is gone and her mother has, uh, died overnight in her sleep. And so the movie follows this two-year-old girl as she, essentially deals with the situation obviously she's two so she's not really aware that her mother has is dead to her she's just sleeping and and won't wake up and so it's just her kind of like living like her life and like going around and being a two-year-old kid while this tragedy has happened and it kind of plays out in a similar fashion uh that buried does the movie with ryan reynolds where he's buried alive and it entirely takes place uh with him buried in this this coffin um, but it just follows this girl inside the, the apartment as she walks around trying to figure things out. And there's so much uh, tension and suspense and like that's really nerve wracking because you're watching this two year old girl do things that like can end very ba- badly. And like there's situations that arise much in the same way that, that Barry does that keep like the um, I don't know, the like keep, keep your interest there because it keeps like changing like her environment like there's she there's the the faucet is running and she can't reach it to turn it off even though she knows it's not supposed to be on and like she tries to cook herself um some naan in, both in the microwave and on the stove which creates uh you know a terrible situation and there's um it's if you feel like you're babysitting this kid but you actually can't do anything to help this child and it's just it's very worrying um it does have some shortcomings in the same way that barry does where there's a lot of exposition and details that come from the little girl um, answering the phone when her father is calling um, that fill in gaps and like provide a little too much like convenient um, explanation as to why things uh, are the way they are and like uh, to help pad out the story. But it, um, it was very impressive because this, they actually have this very young girl playing the, this character whose name is Pihu. Uh, her name is Myra uh, Vishwakarma. And she's, first of all, she's super adorable and just, what they got her to do um and like 
to, to essentially act in this movie was was extremely impressive um and it makes it all the more engaging just as you you watch it to the point where sometimes you feel like you're watching a documentary of just that watch seeing what a girl you know will do on her own in this kind of situation as opposed to um, you know, when the narrative comes in as like the sort of this ticking clock of like, you know, when's the father going to be able to come back home and all this sort of thing. So it was, uh, yeah, an interesting movie. And um, that's available on Netflix if you want to seek it out. Um, okay. I also watched uh, Amazon's Them, which is uh, a new anthology horror series that is available there. Um, and Jacob, did you see part of this when for during South by Southwest? Uh, yeah, I, I saw the first two episodes of South by Southwest. And you, you were pretty unnerved by it, right? Yeah, I was really... I f- enjoyed The Wrong Word, but I found it very effective. Yeah, so it's... um As a horror story, I, it, it's definitely very engaging, and it's disturbing on a number of levels. Um, the, the horror feels familiar. It has elements of Poltergeist and The Conjuring and um, a, a story that lends itself to... Um, the movies of Jordan Peele and how it approaches racism and puts in the social commentary along with, um, you know, familiar horror aspects. But the um, the racism on display in this series in particular, which takes place uh, in the 1950s um, during the Great Migration, when a lot of black families were starting to move into white neighborhoods, um, is particularly upsetting to the point where it's almost stomach churning. And it's very... Um, just despicable and and very hateful and i found even though the the series is effective in creating this very tense and you know upsetting environment where the um really where the racism is more disturbing than the horror elements of it even though there's a lot of crossover with with the the actual horror that is you know haunting this family who has moved into this house in east compton california um i found myself thinking about the fact that the characters themselves are constantly dealing with the horrors of racism. And unfortunately it feels like it's laid on far too thick to the point where it's not subtle, but it also doesn't have anything more to say beyond the idea of, wow, look how terrible and racist all these white people were back in the day without really giving us anything new to chew on or, or giving the, the the black family at the center of the story any breathing room to get you know a, a happy ending or any sort of reprieve the 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 series itself is very much based on this pain and anguish that they feel um as a black family and it doesn't really give them much definition outside of that which um and i um i i read a little bit about this because i was curious what um, critics of color felt like after watching the series. And I found some that were kind of uh, critical of it in that same way, because it almost feels like it's reveling in the degradation um, of black people without really offering, like I said, you know, anything new or giving the characters uh, any substance beyond just feeling this pain. And then at sometimes I felt kind of weird because it feels like sometimes they want you to, they, they, they give, try to give some depth to some of the, more hateful uh, white characters in this neighborhood. And sometimes it feels like they're almost trying to give them a little bit of a sympathetic out, which I was like, I don't know about that. Um, and it's, it's, it's even more interesting because, you know, hearing the, some of the reading, some of the criticism um, from, from black critics online uh, 
it helps provide a different perspective because um, this is a series that also has, um, you know, some, some black creators. Uh, Lena Waithe is one of the executive producers, but the, the directing roster has mostly um, white directors and there's only one black director among them. And so it's, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to like recommend this series just because it is not fun to watch by any means. Uh, there's there, in particular, there's one scene um, in the middle of the series that is like one of, one of the most like just completely wretched and unnerving like scenes I've ever seen as far as just like seeing race and depicted. And it's just, it's just horrific. Um, and so it's not fun, um, but it's, there's enough style there to make it interesting as, as a horror piece. But I do think that there are some, problematic elements of it when it comes to being this series that feels like it's trying to be one that like gives black creators a story to tell and tell a story that has you know black characters at the center of it but it relies too much on a lot of the the tropes that have come to you know define older ideas of like the stories that do focus on black people where it's it's not really stories about black people it's stories about black pain and almost exclusively black pain and I think that that's, that's where, um, in, in reading it, a lot of the frustration comes from. But um, yeah, I don't know. If if you are a horror fan, uh, you know, maybe worth give it, giving it a shot. But it is, it's a rough series. Um, and I, so, like, I didn't, I didn't hate it, but I found myself just uneasy about it for, for a number of reasons. Jacob, do you have anything to add on this show? Yeah, the reaction has been very interesting. It's one of the reasons why I've – it's not that I've – I'm not interested in finishing the show, but the first two episodes were a lot. They hit really hard. They're extremely effective and extremely upsetting. And I, I'll be honest, the reaction out of Southwest from white critics and white horror fans was was very positive. And then once more people of color saw it, the reaction really did shift, and it really made me wonder what I got out of that those first two hours beyond you know an intense suffocating mood of dread and horror and what that meant uh that was so effective for me as a white person so i'm unpacking that and to show that like, i have a really hard time recommending it um based on other people's reactions but i will like i can't deny the filmmaking is extremely effective and you really are put in the shoes and like squarely put in the shoes of people who are suffering humiliating and terrifying and like life degrading life destroying moments and that's I'm trying to, like I said, I, I would like to unpack um, all of this in a way that's responsible. And I can't do that until I've seen more of the show, but also I'm not sure if I want to watch more of the show um, after hearing from people who have seen more of it and have that background. So I'm in a very awkward position to talk about them uh, other than saying, I think that the first two episodes are very impressively made and very impactful in what they're trying to do. Okay. Let's go from serious to funny and entertaining. Brad, you got to see a highly anticipated movie. Yes, uh, I got a screener of The Mitchells versus The Machines, uh, which is a new movie from Sony Pictures Animation. Uh, it is produced by Phil Lord and Chris Miller, um, who have been you know behind the Lego movie and the Lego Batman movie and Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. And uh, this movie was originally supposed to be released um, in theaters by Sony, but Netflix picked it up. And so it will still get a theatrical release, um, a limited one in theaters starting this weekend, and it'll be on Netflix on April 30th. Um, and man, did I love this movie. Um, it's directed by, uh, Mike Rianda, uh, who, and also co-directed by Jeff Rowe. And it's just so vibrant and colorful. And the animation is, is just so lively and original. It, it has some flares of Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, but the, the 
the visuals still like stand out on their own with um, just just how the environments are brought to life. And then because it's this mix of computer animation, um, you know, with 3D characters, but then there are also like what feel like 2D elements on top of the character models and environments where there are like sketch lines that define like the flannel on a shirt or like certain sketch lines to give uh, wrinkles to the the um, characters' faces and things like that at times. And then the, the movie frame itself it comes from uh, one of the main characters, uh, the, the daughter of the Mitchells, who is voiced by Abby Jacobson. She's this aspiring filmmaker, and she makes these wild, um, like, YouTube videos with a lot of, like, fun, colorful graphics and things like that. And that energy and style um, injects itself into the movie. It's where there are these shots that mix computer animation with, like, what look like paper cutout moving graphics and um, like large, vibrant, uh, you know, word art text and things like that. And it just has just this huge um, energy to it. And it, I, I had so much fun watching it. And then on top of it, just how fun it is because of the visuals and the quirky comedy with a sci-fi story about a family fighting against this robot apocalypse. There's also this super heartwarming, touching story about how a dysfunctional family deals with each other and how you know as as kids you come to terms with your parents when you don't really have the same things in common you, it seems like you're at odds all the time and you understand like what's important to each other um and it's it's not as simple and cut and dry as like the uh, i feel like a lot of the lessons in animated movies are where um and the movie even kind of gives almost like a kind of a wink and a nod to that about how the idea of it's like oh the you know the love among humans is what is what saves them it's like uh it digs into it much more deeper than that when all is said and done um there's so much creativity here that i'm as much as i love the movies of uh pixar i feel like they they have a, a certain like DNA to them when it comes to their visual style, much in the same way that classic 2D animated Disney movies have characters who share similar traits and facial expressions and and things like that. And I like seeing movies from other animation studios that venture outside of that and create this otherworldly character design and these environments that have odd angles and um you know they have textures that don't feel realistic but doesn't it doesn't take away you know from uh from the feel of the movie and, and giving it you know stakes or any emotional depth or things like that um and i i wish that more studio movies would take risks that you know like like this especially when it comes to the animation style that does such such unique things um as movies like mitchell's versus the machines and spider-man into the spider-verse does um and oh, it, it and it has like uh, I feel like Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, um, which is an, an, another Lord and Miller production. Um, that's probably the closest, I think, as far as like a, a close cousin to Mitchell's versus the Machines. But yeah, I um I like this movie so much that I want to try to see it on the big screen because it is it's such a big, uh, colorful animated movie that it's just one that would absolutely just pop right off the screen. And I, I hope that it's playing somewhere near me so that I can see it. And if it's playing somewhere near you that you can safely see it, um i would absolutely recommend that you see this in a theater yeah i'm excited to see this when does this come on to netflix april 30th cool ht what have you been watching so my roommate is a big fan of musicals and this past weekend she was like let's watch a musical that I ha we haven't seen in a while and that will just kind of lift our spirits because we just wanted something that was easy to watch and something that we'd both seen before and 
we put on Happy Feet, which was streaming, I think, on Peacock with ads, but only, it was like minimal ads. It was like one ad. Um, and I had seen this movie once back when it first came out, I think in like 2006. And uh, it's the George Miller movie. <laughs> he made Happy Feet and Happy Feet 2 before he went back to doing Mad Max Fury Road. And um, I was kind of, I, I kind of just, you know, I expected the the movie about the, the dancing penguin um, who is, you know, shut out of his society because all the penguins can sing and he can't, he can dance. And then he proves to everyone that he's, he's worth, you know, loving, even though he dances and teaches everyone to, to dance. Um, and I, that's what I remembered of the movie. And what I didn't expect was for the, the musical dancing part to basically be like the first 15 minutes of the movie. And then the movie descending into this Lord of the Rings style epic that was about pollution and global warming. And yeah. uh, I was I was so shocked. I'm like, I don't remember this at all from the movie. And I'm, I'm positive I saw it in theaters. But I literally remembered like the first 15 minutes. And then the latter half is surprisingly dark and grim and very intense. I was... Very, I was very shocked by by the turn of events that Happy Feet took, and um, it it almost ends on a in a manner that felt like extremely bleak for a children's movie, especially where like the the main penguin played by I think Elijah Woods, uh, like ends up in a in an aquarium and he's like hallucinating, and he is just completely cut off and thinks that this is like heaven but he's still think remembering his family and just wants to get back to them and he's just be on display for all these humans and i was like wow is this how this movie ends this is this is horrible and then like it it ends really quickly and like this is how you solve global warming so that, that was nice but wow what a what a strange um and yeah. unexpectedly epic movie and some scenes too were i feel like the precursor to a, a bunch of shots that george miller would end up bringing back in Mad Max Fury Road. Like there was one shot of the the main penguin and his like little, little uh, gang, his little group uh, like struggling against this, this, the wind and this giant tundra and like this um, gale of ice and, and uh, snow is like coming up against them. And it looks almost exactly like the shot uh, in the, in Mad Max Fury Road where the, the, um, uh, cars are about to hit the sandstorm and I was like what, what kind of children's movie is this anyways happy feet <laughs> yeah. surprisingly intense and from what I remember correct me if I'm wrong but in the final act of this movie don't they bring in live action humans yes I they're it's so weird they're like photorealistic humans they're definitely CGI but they're CGI'd to look like real like real human beings and it's very strange yeah okay what else have you been watching hd um on a very uh, unrelated note i decided to check out gray gardens for the first time the um 1975 documentary by albert and david mazels uh about the the two beals uh the edith beale and edie beale mother and daughter who are the cousins of Jackie Kennedy um, and are living in poverty at this East Hampton estate called Grey Gardens. And um, I have known of Grey Gardens, the documentary, through pop culture osmosis. This documentary is, con is considered one of the greatest documentaries of all time, but it's been endlessly parodied. I think there was like, there's like several parodies throughout like The Simpsons. There was that documentary Now segment. And it's just kind of 
gone down to me like mostly in its parody form i do know there was an hbo film that starred drew barrymore and jessica lang that like adapted their lives and i thought that was fascinating i saw the trailer and i'm like oh that looks interesting and so i decided to finally check out the original documentary upon watch which this is all based and uh it's such a fascinating little piece of of history and like this care and character study as well um the the two Beals, um, Edith Beale and Edie Beale, uh, called Big Edie and Little Edie, are um, basically descended from this upper class elite, like socialite circle of American um, society that has kind of gone out of style since, since you know, the 60s and, and everything. And it's so interesting to see how they were raised specifically to be, to live in that circle. And once they were kind of outside of that they fall into despondency they they're basically you know the uh great expectations image of of um of former wealth and and glamour uh while like their house is rotting and and literally rotting and in in dire straits all around them it's and it's it's like this interesting portrait of of these two people who have fallen through the cracks in society and yet live in their own little world. They put on musical shows for the documentary like filmmakers and they they kind of seem to exist solely in that past when they were um, attending uh, parties and debutante balls and putting on musical numbers and and uh and uh acting and it was it's so it's it's very sad and melancholy and i know that this movie in particular is um has a huge following in the lgbt uh q community and uh, specifically little edie and her sort of infamous dance to the military march that she does in her like upside down skirt and headscarf and i can see why that this has become sort of that sort of lgbt beacon but at the same time it just rang to me as like a, this being as being this sort of real life gothic curiosity and um and kind of sad story that like flirted with the exploitation genre um in a way that I don't know I, I'm, I'm sure there's like lots of writing about how this movie was actually exploitative and these people were probably living uh with some form of mental illness but um it doesn't quite get into exploitive because the the treatment of these characters is very sort of loving but it reminded me a lot of like exploitation movies like uh whatever happened to baby jane and like all the the b-horror movies that came out of oh women aging isn't it awful <laughs> kind of story and um but to me i think that this that gray gardens is a lot more complex and a lot more uh i don't know deeper than that and it touches on a lot of different things and i i'm not sure how i feel about like whether it's exploit, exploited or exploitative or not but um i do think that the the documentary itself is a lot more rich and complex than like the parodies have made it out to be so great gardens a really fascinating really interesting and and uh great documentary that's streaming on hbo max cool so let's move on to what we've been eating bread what have you been eating this week uh, just one new thing I tried recently. Um, uh, Lipton came out with a zero sugar version of their brisk lemon iced tea. Um, I've always loved the regular version of this, um, but it, and it seems like, uh, especially um, Pepsi and Coke, they seem to have really been 
trying to come out with zero sugar options since, you know, obviously soda is not super healthy for you and you shouldn't be drinking the regular version, no matter how much better it tastes than almost all of the diet and zero sugar versions out there. Um, so, but I've been going out of my way to try some of the zero sugar ones so that I can, you know, replace some where possible so that I'm, you know, if I choose to have, you know, uh, a soda or a, um, a drink that would normally be sugary, here and there that it's at least is at least a little bit uh, healthier in that regard. So I was curious about this and uh, it's probably one of the uh, best zero sugar offerings that I've, I've come across. Um, the taste is not remarkably dissimilar from the full, you know, regular version of Lipton brisk lemon iced tea. Um, it's still sweet, still just the right amount of lemon. And uh, as somebody, you know, who who enjoys that uh, immensely, especially now that it's getting back into the summer months, um, I feel like iced tea, you know, is one of the more refreshing drinks you can have instead of, you know, uh, a carbonated drink. I'm really happy that this exists. So I hope that it's um, going to be a permanent thing. I know that they've like, some zero sugar options have been tested and don't always stick around, but uh, this just came out. And so it's, it's really good. So if you're looking for a good zero sugar you know lemon iced tea option the the brisk is definitely uh, a good one to get your hands on cool okay let's move on to what we've been playing jacob what have you been playing this week i've been easing back into the world of board games amongst vaccinated friends and family and i want to highlight two games i really enjoy that are not old favorites but fa- games that keep hitting my table uh, one of them is the quest for el dorado uh, this is a uh very simple learn uh but uh very simple to learn, but full of very complex decisions kind of board game where you build a modular map of jungles and wilderness and you travel through it trying to find the mythical city of El Dorado. And you have a deck of cards that represents your uh, expedition team. Each card has different powers. and You play them in various combinations to move across various types of land and finding combos to get where you're going ends up being one of the most satisfying things I've done in board games ever. This game is uh, designed by Reiner Knizia who is a European board game designer. He's tends to have very mathematical, very, you know, balanced game designs and he's hit and miss. Sometimes he designs masterpieces, sometimes he designs forgettable games. And I think Eldorado is probably one of the best games he's ever designed. It is just so balanced and sound from a game design point of view. And the fact that you are racing other players, you are all, you all start the same deck of cards. You can build to it throughout the game and you are all, start out on equal footing and it becomes a game of of utilizing what's in your deck more efficiently in better ways and it's trying the dread competition aspect of it is so much fun because you can literally see who's in the lead of the race and conspire to get ahead of them it is it really is the perfect you know mid-tier board game where it's there are enough complex choices enough enough depth to it to appease a seasoned board gamer you also play it with an eight-year-old they'd probably have a great time uh so that's the quest for Eldorado. it's a it's been hitting my table on and off for years, and after a year of not playing it, it broke down. But probably played it four times in a row with some family members. Uh, and a uh, newer classic, uh, Dice Throne. This game is back in the spotlight for me because it's released a bunch of new sets. And Dice Throne is essentially what if Yahtzee but Mortal Kombat. <laughs> um, each set is a is uh, a character uh, who has very special powers. Like there's a samurai or a gunslinger or, uh, the monk or the ninja, you know, all these various, you know, fighting game type, uh, archetypes. And 
It's one of the best package games I've ever seen. Each character comes in their own little sealed package with its own little plastic lid. So all your pieces for your character are all in one place. You un- unfold it, and it's all there. You put all the back, and it just makes organizing a breeze. But organizing, but organizing means nothing if the game's not good. And Dice Throne is really good. If you know how to play Yahtzee, you can play Dice Throne. But instead of you know rolling um, three of a kind, hoping for you know traditional Yahtzee results like you roll three of a kind to slash with your sword or you roll a small straight in order to fire your cannon and ends up having these really interesting combinations you can really use the dice in really fun clever ways and it's it's a more complex game ultimately than Eldorado because there are characters who are hard to play and some who are easy Uh, but being able to go into a game night and say um, half the rules are Yahtzee (laughs) and unfold it everybody knows how to get going uh, makes you want a real winner for game groups of all different you know makeups so uh quest for Eldorado and dice throne hitting my table a lot these past few weeks i like them a lot very cool okay you can find more of all of our work at slash one.com you can find this podcast on apple google overcast spotify all the popular podcast apps please feel free to send your questions comments concerns to peter at slash one.com and please rate and read this podcast in apple Podcasts. tell your friends spread the word and we'll see you tomorrow Hey, Peter, I missed last week, so we got to really, really make sure we don't miss the Grantian Book of Insult, Offense, and Affrontery. Sharp retorts for posts, cost equips, implant put downs by Lewis A. Safian. But by, by the way, uh, I got sent this book from one of our listeners. Huh. Oh. One of our listeners named John sent this book into Ordinary Adventures. We, we opened it in our last mail unboxing. So I have the book in front of me, Jacob. Before you read, I just want to huh? say I, I have solved the mystery of Lewis A. Safian. Oh, yeah? So I opened up this book, and in the beginning, I'm not sure if your copy says this, but it's a, it has a inscription here, to my wife, Ray, who, R-E-A, who laughs at all my jokes, not because they're always clever, but because she is. Um, yeah. So I, I was able to look up Ray Safian, and I was able to find in the 1940, 1940 census, there was a Louis A. Safian and a Ray Safian who lived together, and at the time... They were both around forty years old, so I'm guessing Lewis does not is is no longer with us. You can make that guess, Peter, but until I find a body, until I'm staring at his corpse, <laughs> holding pieces of his decayed flesh in my hands. Oh my! I'm, wow! Wow! You say Safian never dies. <laughs> he never dies. He's always out there. As long as we share his work, like on the Gold Digger section on page 321, uh, uh, Peter. Uh, you know how to make a, you know how to make a rich guy stop, look, and loosen. Brad, he doesn't mind if a man doesn't have his name in a social register, so long as he has enough in the cash register. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. HT, in slang terms, your boyfriends may know their onions when it comes to tomatoes, but you know her cara- her carrots spelled like diamond carrots. Ah, I do know my carrots. Uh, ben. The best jokes are the ones you have to explain. <laughs> ben, when friends ask you, where have you been keeping yourself? You answer truthfully, I haven't. Uh, relatable? I don't know. Uh, Chris, it doesn't take you long to snare a rich guy. Just a little while. While spelled W-I-L-E. Man, I wish. That's a gold digger section. Uh, <laughs> Peter, uh, I, I think we should start a crowdfunding campaign to help us track down Louis Asifian's corpse and have it delivered to Austin. No. <laughs> oh my God. No, Jacob. I mean, At the very get... least, we should find his bones. They have to be somewhere. Or his somewhere. frozen head. <laughs> by, by the way, I just realized this, Jacob. The book huh? I have is called The Giant Book of Insults, 
a rollicking collection of caustic quips, barbed wit, and sharp retorts. But that's not the same as what you have. No, it's not. I have the gargantuan book of insult defense in front wow, of Wow, you have so, so a different book, Peter. The interesting like. thing here is I think I have two books in one. So the book combines the the 2,000 insults for all occasions, uh, and it combines another book as well. So That's very interesting. So oh, Jacob, but you're going to have to find... Oh, yeah. It, it incorporates 2,000 insults for all occasions and 2,000 more insults. So, so Jacob, you need to find this 2,000 more insults book. Uh, 4,000 insults. <laughs> uh, Peter, yeah. I'm, I'm double-checking this. I think mine may be similarly structured. Give me one second. People, our listeners are loving this. Uh, yeah, I, I have, my, my book is fired the two main sections, 2,000 insults for all occasions and 2,000 okay. more insults. Interesting. Yeah. It sounds there goes to me my, like there goes my Christmas gift to you. Like I think Louis A. Safian double dipped <laughs> under different titles. Uh, okay, we're gonna read more insults, or can we can we end this now? Oh, do do you want me to read more, Peter? Is that what you're asking? <laughs> Are you asking no, me to read more insults? I thought you said you were gonna double to, uh, double down. Uh, I, I I didn't make sure uh, double down on the on the on the very concept of making sure we did insult this week. I mean, I opened up the page two hundred sorry no. one hundred sixty nine political acrobats. Uh, Peter, your favorite menu is applesauce served with pork because you're a politician. What? Uh, wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. <laughs> I need you to explain that one, Jacob. Your favorite menu is applesauce served with pork. Remember, it's important that we're in the political acrobat section. So it's wait, can, they're political jokes. Can anybody answer that? Does anybody... Well, pork is like money, right? No, it's oh. like a bill when you tack a bunch of extra oh, right, stuff onto right, right. a bill. Oh. I don't know what the applesauce is. I don't know what the applesauce is. is. Pork is traditionally served with applesauce. It's a traditional American. Oh, oh is that it? Yeah. Okay. I accept that. That so makes total sense. Peter, Let's move on. Your favorite menu is applesauce served with pork. Huh. Uh, Brad, around election time, you always announce your views from your hedge quarters. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he has a hedge fund? Uh, HT, at the start of a campaign, you come out shooting from the lip. Ah, instead of the hip. Uh, ben, you fill the air with speeches and vice versa. And vice versa. <laughs> so he takes so your speeches, speeches out of the air. A lot of like, uh, okay. Yeah. A lot of hot, hot air. air. Right. Okay. Uh, I got it. Yes. See, I, I understand how <laughs> say Safian's mind works. <laughs> and Chris, he's standing on his record to keep the voters from taking a good look at it. Uh-oh. Oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Should we end this? Should we end this, this, this nightmare of, of. Yeah, that's enough. Yeah. Yes. Uh, th- that's the end.